The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 65. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. This is the word of the Lord. A while back, I was in a rhythm of telling my kids stories at bedtime. Uh, It started one night when I was just too tired to read a book, and so I decided to make up a story about two princesses named Zoe and Piper. That's the name of my two daughters, or two of my three daughters. These stories had the same basic plot night after night. Uh, Princess Zoe and Piper were the most beautiful, kind, and courageous princesses in all the land. Everything was great, and their family was full of love and fun until one day. Now, this is where I introduced a new villain each night. One night, it was a horrible dragon named Javin. Uh, (laughs) Another, it was a two-headed beast named after one of our neighborhood boys. Uh, Another time, it was a cold-hearted witch who was trying to turn them both into statues. I borrowed that one from some C.S. Lewis. Uh, The villains changed each night, but the story basically stayed the same. Things were really good. Then came a villain who introduced trouble into the story, and night after night, that trouble had to be vanquished. Some nights, they had to push back the darkness and conquer their foes themselves. But most nights, it was a big brother turned knight, or it was a father king full of righteous anger who saved the day. And night after night, the story kind of went the same. They lived happily ever after. Well, one night, when I was especially tired, you can kind of see a theme here, uh, I flipped the script a little bit. I said, once upon a time, there was a princess named Zoe. She was a beautiful princess full of kindness who loved taking care of all of the animals of her kingdom. All of the animals loved her, and she loved all the animals, and especially her bunnies. 
Her rabbits were her favorite, and Princess Zoe lived happily ever after with a kingdom full of rabbits. The end. Zoe looked at me, smiled, and said, that wasn't a very good one, Dad. (laughs) Tell me another one. She was right. It wasn't. But why wasn't it? The story had, once upon a time, the story had fun and love and kindness and bunnies and even ended with happily ever after. But to my then four-year-old daughter, this story wasn't a very good one, Dad. Try it again. Why? Well, here's my premise today. We all hear that story and we reject it as boring, as lame, as inconsequential, It isn't even worthy to be retold. And yet, I believe deep down, all of us live our lives believing and hoping that that story would be our own. Deep down, in places that we might not even register in our consciousness, we all believe that our story should go like that. Things are good. Things get better. Things stay good. Happily ever after. We reject the story as bad, and yet deep down, we expect and believe our stories to follow that narrative. Isn't that why trouble, when it enters our life, comes at such a shock to us? How often do you find yourself thinking, I can't believe this is happening to me. I can't believe that person said that to me. Or I can't believe I'm sick and in this type of pain. I can't believe my marriage isn't working out like I planned it would. I can't, I watch the news. I can't believe people would use children as shields or they would blow themselves up in the name of religion. I can't believe this is happening. That is to say, all of us deep down believe that we are written into some kind of story of glory, a story that should not include any trouble or sickness, or villains. We want to believe that we have no great war to wage or great opponent to fight. We secretly believe that our lives should be quiet and peaceful and progress along from one sunny day to the next happily ever after. And when our lives don't follow that storyline, many of us take it up the corporate ladder straight to God. And we say, my life is full of trouble and I blame you. You aren't good. How could a good God let this stuff happen to me? Do you see my life? Do you see the trouble? How could you be good? And if you are good, then you're obviously impotent. You're not powerful enough to actually move in my life and help. We blame God for the trouble in our life and others usually with a more religious upbringing, they see trouble in their life as punishment from God. We saw this a lot actually in Kenya. They think, I must have done something to upset God. God must be angry at me. If I live better, my life will have less trouble in it. The more I obey God, the more I live to please him, the less trouble my life will have in it. Both of those understandings are wrong and both of those responses come from not understanding the story of God. And if that's the case, today's scripture is going to help us a great deal. But first, I need to clear something up from the beginning of the story of God. Many of us believe that God's story, which is God's story, is the story of everything, okay? It includes your own story in the here and now. Many people believe that God's story started out like the story I told Zoe. In the beginning, everything was good, and therefore there was no trouble. But I want to challenge that interpretation a little bit this morning. It's not exactly right, is it? Yes, God created everything and said that it was good, but was the garden really full or free of trouble? No. It wasn't. There was a serpent sneaking around telling lies about God. There was a tree with killer fruit that was not supposed to be eaten. 
This is trouble in the making. And yet God said in this situation, it is still good. This is the beginning of a good story. Adam and Eve were sinless, and yet trouble still slithered in the garden. Here's my point. Every good story includes trouble. Trouble was not a result of the fall. Trouble was not a result of the sin of Adam and Eve. Trouble was therefore, trouble was there before they sinned. Therefore, as human beings written into this story of God, we should expect trouble in our lives. But the real questions Or how are you going to prepare for the trouble that's on its way? And then how will you respond when the trouble hits your story? When the trouble comes to your story, how are you going to respond to it? The question isn't, is trouble coming? It's already coming. It's already here. It's written into your story because you have a good story. And you're a part of the God story. The The question is, how will you prepare for it? And then how will you respond to it? Because if you don't prepare for it, then you won't respond well. To it when it enters your story. See, God gave Adam and Eve a heads up. He tried to prepare them for the trouble that was on its way. But they weren't prepared. Adam should have spent his day building a fence around the death tree and hunting the serpent. That's what Adam should have done. But he didn't. When Eve ate the fruit, Adam should have responded. God said, there's a tree, don't eat of it. He he warned him, there's trouble out there. Adam should have took the initiative and built a fence around that tree to protect his wife from it so nobody gets close to it, right? He should have went out looking for the serpent to, to kill him and hang it up on his wall, mounted that bad boy, but he didn't. That's how he should have responded. And then even after Eve ate the fruit, Think about this. Eve gave in to sin. She ate the fruit. She took it to her husband and offered it to her husband. The story's not over here. Adam should have responded in at least three ways. One, he should have resisted. No, I'm not going to eat that fruit. God said not to eat that fruit. Second, he now had a license to kill. Right? He should have went after the serpent. and The one who, who deceived you, the snake deceived you, where's he at? Let me find him. Should have went after the snake. Third, he should have went to the father. He should have went to God and said to God, the wife that you gave me, she ate of the fruit. I wasn't doing my job. I didn't lead her well. I didn't build a fence. I didn't kill the serpent. It's my fault. Don't kill her. Kill me. See, Adam should have took the initiative as the husband and said, it's my responsibility. Take me, don't take her. Adam is sinless at this moment. Theoretically, Adam's life could have been given for her life and his, his sinlessness counts, you know, takes out her sinfulness. God could have killed him, raised him to new life, end of story, make babies, populate the earth back in Genesis 1. Let's do this thing. Theoretically, that could have happened. But Adam didn't respond that way. Adam gave in to sin. But I want you to see that trouble was in the garden before Adam and Eve sinned. Trouble was part of their story even when things were all good. And so it is with us today. In the book of Job, in chapter 5, verse 7, he says says this, man was born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Trouble is a key aspect of our story. And if we fail to prepare for it, we're warned about it. And if like Adam, we fail to prepare for it, we are doomed to repeat the mistakes that Adam did. And we're going to crumble under the weight of the trouble as it enters into our story. See, Adam and Eve weren't prepared for the trouble and they failed and surprisingly, neither were the apostles. And that's what we see in our story today. The apostles weren't prepared for the trouble that was going to come into their life and because they weren't prepared for it, they crumble under the weight of it when it enters their story. Even though Jesus had specifically warned them, trouble's coming. 
In verse 27 of this chapter, Jesus told them this, you're all going to fall away. Looking at his closest disciples, seems like it's the pinnacle of their ministry, the Passover, the last supper. They're doing, they're together, they're in Jerusalem. This is a great night. Jesus is about to inaugurate his kingdom. The new king has come. You're all going to fall away from me. It says, God will strike the shepherd. And when God strikes the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And we know what they said. No, not me. Jesus said, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Give it to me. They all drink the cup. They all swear allegiance to him. They all say, we will. Remember Peter? I, they all might fail, but I won't. And then the next line is, they all said, we will die with you. We will not betray you. And by verse 50, right, a few hours after this confession of faith, by verse 50, they've all fled. As God's strikes begin to land on the shepherd, the sheep begin to scatter, every one of them. And that should mess us up this morning. Because especially if you've been with us this whole, this last year, 15 months, how long have we been studying this book? Because we've watched Jesus go from this nobody, right? He's about 30 years old. He pops up. He's ready to get baptized by his cousin. He goes out to the, into the desert. He's all alone. He's got no friends. His family already start thinking he's crazy. He's all alone. And within a few short months of preaching the gospel and performing miracles, Jesus goes from nobody to the most popular thing in town. Thousands of people are rushing around him. He's the most uh, sought-after teacher the world had ever seen at this moment. He, the crowds clamored around him so much that he struggled to eat. He couldn't find time to eat. He would have to sneak away in boats and sneak away at night to get away just to be alone with his disciples and his apostles. He was so popular. And he chose these 12 guys, chose them. Think about that. He didn't just go, all right, give me the 12 best or give me the 12 worst. He didn't have to sign up and have a committee. He didn't have some kind of obstacle course to decide who's the fittest, right? I take the top 12. He goes and he looks at him and he says, Peter, I want you. Matthew, I want you. Jay, I want you. He says, Judas, I want you. Follow me. And all of these men drop everything, careers. They figure out their families. They bring their, some of them bring their families along. How are we going to support ourselves? This guy doesn't even have a house, a place to lay his head. But all of these 12 apostles drop everything. That's what discipleship is. Dropping everything and follow Jesus. And it seems like they're on a story of glory, right? This guy from the backwoods, all of a sudden, pops up at 30 years old, and he's a brilliant teacher. He speaks with all kind of authority, and everybody's mouth drops when he preaches, and he can perform miracles, and they're like, we are in. Like, we found the secret sauce, baby. This guy is our ticket to greatness. And everything is moving up, and everything is progressing along how they think it's going to progress. And when Jesus warns them over and over, trouble's coming, trouble's coming, trouble's coming, in one ear, out the other ear, they don't prepare for it. And what we see today is that Jesus was, first off, he was really experiencing first century stardom. Okay, there's no internet, right? There's no YouTube sensations. Jesus was experiencing first century stardom Everybody knew his name. Everybody was overwhelmed at what he could do. But his popularity was short-lived, three years about. And today we see it end. By verse 50, he's alone again. So it wasn't a story of glory. It was a story of the cross. It, it shot up, hit a peak, boom, dropped off suddenly. Trouble was in his story. Trouble was written into his story. Um, as man is born for trouble, as the sparks fly upward, so Jesus was born for trouble. If anyone in the history of man deserved a story of glory without any trouble in it, it was Jesus. 
If trouble is only a result of sin, Jesus shouldn't have felt the weight of it, but he did. The story was a story of trouble. It's a painful thing, I think, to watch people. Well, there's two sides to this. When you watch people fall from stardom, like two sides. There's one side that's like really painful. And there's other side that's kind of like, I'm kind of glad he did. He's rich, he's powerful, he's got everything he needed. You know, we can take, just look at our Super Bowl last week. They bring out all the Super Bowl, ex-Super Bowl MVPs. Did you see that? Did you see all these men come out, the heroes, the gladiators of their day? When I saw Brett Favre, I was like, ooh. Straight white hair, straight white beard. The guy, I mean, I was like, ooh. The glory days are gone, Brett. But it's not just age, right? Like you, you, you see these guys crippled out, but then you, you hear these young guys like Johnny Manziel, right? Everything on a platter, everything given to the most talented guy, and addiction is robbing his life. His own dad says he might be dead by next year if he doesn't change his life. You hear of guys like Charlie Sheen, they're, they're, Michael Jackson, ever. They're, they're just up, 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 and then crash. Come falling down, and their stardom, the stars begin to fade, and trouble begins to take over their life and dominate them. And it's painful to watch from the outside in, and, but some of us, we might even gloat. I knew it. They're getting what's coming to them. Had an easy life. We don't think that would be us if we're in the same situation, same circumstance. But in this story today, we see Jesus' fame It begins to die down, and it's not being cut short because of addiction or old age or because he's a one-hit wonder. See, Jesus, as Eric said last week, Jesus had one non-negotiable, and that was obedience to his Father. And we even see in the scriptures here today, in verse 49, he says, when they come to get him and they come to arrest him, he says this, let the scriptures be fulfilled. What's that saying? Let the story play on. Just read the story. I'm a part of the story of God. Just let the story be told. Let me play my part. And my part has trouble in it. And this is interesting to me because in our text, if Jesus is just a normal dude like us, what do normal people do when their star begins to go out? Right? I'll tell you what they do. They retire then they go back, right? They can't handle it. I don't even know. How many times did Michael Jordan go back? I don't even know. He's probably still thinking about it right now, right? That's what's, what do they do? What are stars doing as popularity and as ability and as they're just renowned, as it, as it begins to twinkle away, what do men do? We grasp at it. We cling to it. We do everything in our power to keep the popularity that we once had. This is why success in business is so scary. Success in anything is so scary. Because it's easy. Before you get successful, you're always clawing, always scratching, always have a goal in mind, and you're always moving forward. But once you get that success, there's this new fear, and it's this fear of losing it. Because you know you're not going to keep it. You won't be the CEO forever. You won't be the top salesman forever. You won't be in your prime forever. And there's this fear now. Once you have what you've been working for, now you have to keep it. And that fear is exhausting. And that fear drives many people to suicide when they lose it. But what we see from Jesus here is when the fame begins to go out, when his star begins to go out, when he falls from stardom, we don't see a man grasping, clutching at his popularity, clutching at his fame, It's slipping like sand through his fingers and he's doing everything he can to keep it and maintain it. Three short years of popularity. And yet we see Jesus today willingly give it up. Man was born for trouble. As the sparks fly upward, Jesus was born to be a star, but he was also born to be a star that burned out. Jesus, like all of us, was born to trouble. And today we get to see that trouble in very intimate detail. Let's read verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, this is in the garden, where the father 
His blows began to land on him. He was crushed. And he said, Father, if this cup could be taken from me, take it, but not my will, your will be done. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12. And with him, a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests. This isn't the Romans. This is the religious elite and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Now this is interesting. This is probably the most famous kiss in all of history. You've heard the Judas kiss. You've heard um, the killer kiss or the death kiss. All comes from this right here. Now, this is, there's all kind of art, all kind of artwork. Uh, it's a very, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very famous kiss. But what's actually going on here? Jesus is experiencing the most intimate of betrayals, a betrayal with a kiss, something, an act that is meant to say you love someone, an act of intimacy, but in reality, this is an, an intimate act on the outside, but inwardly, it's a murderous intent. It's got ulterior motives. It's something that looks good on the outside, but it's got death underneath it. What's supposed to be an act of love is actually an act meant to harm. And this act obviously has been immortalized in our culture. 2,000 years later, people still, don't be a Judas. Oh, that's a Judas kiss. You can still hear it in sitcoms and our language and our culture today. And what was going on here? Now, this is interesting. Why didn't Jesus, and this is, there's a lot of theories. Why didn't Judas just walk up and go, it's him? Stay back, stay out of the fray. It's that guy. Why does Judas walk up and kiss him? Well, I'm interested, I kind of can go on a rabbit trail here, but I don't want to because this is, in the Gospel of Mark, this is the last time we hear of Judas. Mark doesn't even, Mark really doesn't care. He just talks about Judas here and then he's on with something else. In the other Gospels, you hear what happens to Judas. Judas gets remorseful. Judas gives back the money that he was given to betray Jesus and then Judas ultimately hangs himself, okay? Unrepentant, but remorseful, full of grief, hangs himself. Mark doesn't even mention it. All Mark does is tell us how he betrays him here. Now, why? Why would Judas do this? Many people believe and many scholars believe, and I'm inclined to believe, that Judas wasn't trying to get Jesus killed here. It's not what Judas was doing. Judas, like the rest of the apostles, wanted Jesus to start his kingdom now. And he didn't want... The Beatitudes, blessed are the, those who mourn, blessed are those who weep, blessed are those, you know, ah, I don't, that's not how you change the world, Jesus. You change the world through revolution. You change the world by claiming what's yours and clinging to it and pulling out the sword when necessary. That's how you change the world. So many scholars believe what Judas is doing here is actually just trying to manipulate Jesus. He's trying to kiss Jesus Show, through an act of love, cause these Roman warriors, or these, these, these uh, actually they weren't Roman, the, the Jewish uh, security guard to try to arrest him and then Jesus, like Superman, come out of the Clark Kent wardrobe and deal with business. He wants to force the kingdom to come right now. Set up your throne. I'm tired of this waiting around. I'm tired of this cloak and dagger. I'm tired of this secret act. I'm going to kiss Jesus, and then I'm going to sit back, and as they attack him, he's going to pull a Samson. You remember the Samson? He's going to shake himself, and he's going to dominate these fools. Angels are going to rain down from the heavens, and the kingdom's going to come. And maybe, since I instigated it, I might be able to get a right or left job here. Right? Many scholars think that's what's going on. I, I'm inclined to think that's probably right, too, that he's manipulating. He's trying to force Jesus' hand. But what ultimately happens is he kisses him, he steps back, and the unthinkable happens. Jesus is betrayed with a kiss, and his betrayers attack him, and they grab him, and they arrest him, and he doesn't do anything. He's silent. He's led away like a lamb to the slaughter. 
So first thing we see Jesus experience here is this intimate betrayal. And many of you who have been betrayed, you've, been, you've felt this intimate betrayal through an affair, through a friend. You know what it's like to be betrayed by someone really close to you. Well, Jesus does too. Jesus was betrayed in the most intimate way possible with a, by a guy who he lived three years of his life with. And yet he doesn't come out as the wrathful God. He doesn't respond. He doesn't cling to it. He doesn't take off running or, or say, yep. Yeah. You know, we see, we see an unnamed disciple pull his sword and John, it tells us that's Peter, right? And what's Jesus say? Put away the sword, Peter. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. He's not having his apostles, you know. Think about this. Now, I'm not saying, and this, well, I'm not even gonna say that. Never mind. Never mind. Second, Let's keep reading. Verse 45. And when he came, he went up and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, you know what? I am going to say it. I, if only Peter had a concealed carry license. He could have just popped those fools and been done with it. And we would remain in our sins. The story involved trouble. Now listen, I have no problem. I don't have a problem with concealed carry. Just to let you know, I have one. Not on me. I'm not saying anything like that. I have a concealed carry license myself. Um, I have made it up in my mind to protect myself. I would probably never use it. Okay? But to protect my sheep or to protect my family or to protect innocent people out at the mall or at a movie theater or wherever, I probably would. That's my own opinion. I'm not saying that's the opinion of our church by any means. That's my own opinion. But in this moment, Peter draws his weapon and Jesus says, put it away. You live by it, you die by it. That's not the only thing in scripture about that, that kind of situation. This isn't speaking specifically to conceal carry, but it's just a thought, okay? He, he didn't want him to, to protect him. He didn't want to be self-protected in this moment. Trouble was written into a story and he was going to accomplish something by dying that he could not accomplish by defending himself or letting others defend himself. That was not in my notes. I might get in trouble for that. Let me just keep moving. <clears throat> Verse 48, and Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Like, Jesus wasn't He-Man out in the desert pumping irons and swinging a sword around like Thor or or a hammer around like Thor. He he wasn't a violent man by any means. And they come with a lot of muscle to take him out. He says, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, but you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let the story that was written before time began, let the story play on and let me play the part that was written for me. And they all left him and fled. Okay, this is the point I need to talk about. Well, second point. Apparently, Jesus warning them that you need to take up your cross and follow me. Apparently, Jesus warning them, trouble's coming. You're all going to flee. God's going to strike the shepherd. I'm going to be crucified or I'm going to be killed in Jerusalem by the religious leaders. Somehow, the apostles listened to that teaching and never really understood what was going on. Trouble is coming. You're associated with him. So that means trouble's coming to your story. So this moment, at this night, when they can't even stay awake to pray with Jesus one hour, when the, when, the, when the guards come, when the religious leaders come, they're so shocked, they're so unprepared that the religious elite would be trying to take out Jesus and it would be arresting him. When somebody comes knocking on his door, they run. They weren't prepared for the trouble that was written into their story. They weren't prepared for it. Just so confident a few hours before. I'll drink the cup. Give it to me right now. I'll down it. I'll die with you. You see a garrison of troops coming up. And Peter has this moment. 
let's fight. No, 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 we're not, we're not, we didn't come here to fight. I came here to die. And just his whole worldview, his whole story, his whole understanding of the world came crashing down. He takes off. And a young man, verse 51, followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, I'm sure you've done a lot of studying on that verse. It's got a deep meaning. really can change your life. Early church fathers say that this is Mark's signature in the Gospel of Mark. That Mark was the, the guy who had his little cl- nightgown on, basically. And he's following around, watching the apostles. And everything goes according to God's plan and according to Jesus' plan, but not according to their plan. And the story seems to have lost its point. And it's, you know, it's it's conquering king is being conquered himself. And he takes off running and they grab his shirt and he shakes it off. And it's his nightgown and now he's running away naked. And Mark wanted the world to know when you read this gospel, that's my testimony. When they all, I'm not a, I'm not this, you know, wise scholar writing down this words of Peter because I'm so, you know, I'm such a man. No, no, no. What did I do? I, I ran to. At the moment of his greatest need, I was running, I was streaking through the streets naked. Right? That's me. Okay? Peter the fisherman, Matthew the tax collector, Mark the streaker. What a testimony. Right? Parents, there's hope for your kids. There we go. <clears throat> what happens here? Jesus is abandoned by those closest to him. He's left alone at his darkest moment. For those who deal with loneliness, those who struggle with loneliness, look at Jesus alone on the darkest night of his life. He told everyone about it. It's coming. It's happening. It's going to happen. They all abandoned him in his moment of his greatest need. Disciples were not prepared for this type of trouble. So they ran, and now here's Jesus, isolated and alone with no one but his accusers and his enemies. Let's keep reading. Verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. This is at night. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards warming himself by the fire. We're going to talk more about Peter next week. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Okay, so first off, this is what I want us to feel this. This is Jesus under the weight of an unjust legal system, okay? This is an illegal trial in many different ways. Number one, the accusers want him dead. They're they're just looking for a way to kill him, right? They're not, you know, balancing the evidence here. They have a purpose. They have a goal to kill him, and now they're trying to get evidence to to bring about their purpose, okay? So we see several things. Number one, it was illegal for to have a capital case at night, okay? Jewish law forbid this. So forbade this. So this is a legal, an illegal trial. Secondly, if any time you have witnesses that uh, oppose one another, immediately that is thrown out. Okay, that witnessing, that witness testimony is thrown out because it counteracts each other, and we see that going on right here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's keep reading. For, verse fifty-six. For many bore false witness against him but their testimony did not agree, should have been thrown out. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Well, almost. It's close. It's not what Jesus said. Jesus said the temple would be destroyed, and he was speaking of his own body, that his own body, the temple, would be destroyed, and in three days he would raise up to new life. Yet even about this testimony did not agree, 59. And the high priest stood up in the midst and he asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. See, 
as the allegations are coming in, as the testimony and the lies and all the false reporting is coming in, Jesus remains silent. And when the high priest says, what do you say about all this stuff people say about you? Jesus remains silent. He refuses to respond. Now, if you've ever had someone lie about you, if you've ever had false report come in about you, somebody at your work said you did something, they told your boss and it wasn't true and now you're under the weight, you know the first thing you want to do is defend yourself. That's not what I did. That's not what I said. All of this self-justification comes up. And Jesus is here and they're lying about him. And he stays silent. He stays quiet. He refuses to speak on his defense. It seems that in the midst of this trouble, somehow Jesus is still at peace. Like the night in the boat when the storm was brewing and Jesus was still calm asleep in the bottom of the boat and the disciples are panicking. Jesus is chill. This night, a storm is brewing. The disciples have jumped ship and Jesus is still calm. He doesn't need to respond to the allegations that are going against him. So let me ask you, Is this how you respond? When trouble enters your story? Staunch, solid, faithful. No need to defend yourself. Is this how you stare down sickness or loss of influence or demotion at work? See, this, Christian, this is our standard. Jesus is our example here. This is how men and women of faith who believe in God, this is how they respond when trouble enters their life. They're not blown away. They're not shocked. They don't jump ship. They stand, doing all that you know to do. Put all the full armor of God. Stand therein. This is what they do. They stand. We refuse to let it shake our faith. We refuse to be shocked or surprised by it. We were born to trouble. But Jesus doesn't stop there. No, see, when the high priest realizes he has no case and they can't do what they're trying to do, they can't trap him and trick him and get false witnesses, it's not going to come out the way that they want, he asks, he asks him directly, he says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Verse 62 And Jesus said, men, there's no man that has ever walked the face of the earth like Jesus. You maybe have told that Jesus is some kind of sissy, some kind of, I mean, just, uh, you know, he did get himself killed. In this moment, when all he has to do is stay quiet and he could probably walk out of the room, they have no case. Are you the Christ? the son of God, the son of the blessed. Saying he's the Messiah, by the way, wouldn't get him killed. Many people said they were the Messiah. They thought that was just a, a man who's gonna be king. Saying you're the son of the blessed, you're son of God, that'll get a man killed. Jesus says, I am. What a man. What a spine. He says, I am, and you, looking at the high priest, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And we've known this before. We've learned this before. Those aren't clouds like, you know, we're talking about up in the sky. That's the glory cloud of heaven. That's the Shekinah glory. And this is what he's saying. If you've got, you know, many people in our society are into that making a murderer show right now. And if you watch that show, you know, you sit there and you start getting really, really angry at the injustice that's going on. Right? Even though it might not be the whole picture, you get this angst inside of you. There's injustice in the world. This isn't right. How can this really happen? Jesus is experiencing that firsthand, an unjust trial, a miscarriage of justice. Jesus is under it, and Jesus stands up when he could walk out, and he says, are you the son of God? He says, I am, and you, this unjust judgment, this false trial that's going on right now, one day you're going to see me coming, and you're going to stand before my tribunal. I'm going to stand before my court. I'll be the judge. See, you think you've got me, you know, you're the judge and I'm on trial here? No, 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 no. I'm the king and I'm coming back in the, with clouds of glory and I'll judge this 
wicked world. I'll judge this earth where justice does miscarriage. Miscarry, sorry. And Jesus shows us what's going on here. Jesus shows us. It looks like whoever's writing this story, it looks like Jesus has lost control. But that's not what's going on. Jesus is showing us here. He's in absolute control. You can't kill me. You can't crucify me. You have no case. Oh, but I need to die because my father wrote it in. So I'm going to incriminate myself. I am the son of God. Jesus, the perfect man, the sinless son of God, in this moment, stared down the same trouble that sends us into hiding or despair. He was betrayed in the most painful way possible by someone he loved with a kiss. He was abandoned by everyone and was left all alone. He stood in the face of a corrupt government and power structure. He's lost all of his fame, all of his influence, all of his popularity, and he's being beaten and spit upon in these next few verses. Jesus was born for trouble, and yet unlike us, Jesus doesn't find it shocking. Jesus doesn't lash out at God. Nor does he see this as proof that he's doing something wrong. He's not here getting beaten going, oh, I must have misspoke or I must have sinned in some way. I must have tripped up. God must be mad at me. He doesn't doubt. There's a big, do you realize how much theological truth and also just how much effectual truth is in that statement, I am? That in this moment, his darkest moment, he's not doubting that he's the son of God. He's not doubting what Jesus, listen, here's our problem. What God tells us in the light, we doubt in the dark. When what God said to Jesus at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Remember that? And it just made Jesus like buoyant. It filled his heart. He went out into the desert. See, this, Satan is tempting that in him right now. Are you really the son of God? If you're the son of God, how, how could this trouble be coming into your life? This doesn't make, doesn't make sense. In fact, that's what, Jesus, that's what Satan offered Jesus in the desert. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. What's the hint? No cross, Jesus. If you worship Satan, no cross. I'll give you everything. No cross. No trouble in my story. Jesus says, no, he follows the story of God, and trouble is a part of the story of God. And he's at this moment, everybody's abandoned him. His best, one of his best friends betrayed him. He's being beaten. He's in this illegal trial, and he refuses to doubt his identity as the son of God. He refuses to doubt that he's loved, that he's accepted, that he's in the will of God. Jesus says, I am the son of God. He knows where his identity lies. He knows that it's secure and no one can take it from him. Because Jesus never doubts in the dark what God told him in the light. Jesus never doubts the father's love for him. He never doubts that even in his darkest moments, even when the waves of trouble are crashing down on him and men are doing everything in their power to destroy him and devils are whispering in his ear, you can't trust the Father, your story has gone off script, he's still loved by God. He's still the Son of God. His faith in God and in the story of God is unshaken. And here we see Interestingly enough, those three tests that I said, the three, three ways that Adam should have responded in the garden, we see Jesus respond in the way that Adam should have responded here, coming out of this garden. Every test that Adam failed, Jesus passed. See, Eve ate the fruit, remember? And then Adam followed her in her rebellion. And all of us, all of mankind has done the same. And yet here we see Jesus standing firm in the face of temptation. In the face of trouble, Jesus doesn't give in. And then we see Jesus do what Adam should have done, and Jesus takes the initiative. 
He's not sitting back as a helpless pawn into the story. He's marching forward. I am the son of God. Do what you will. Peter, put the sword away. I have to go to my death. Jesus is marching forward. He's putting his face into the wind and he's marching into the trouble that's waiting for him. Jesus is taking the initiative that Adam failed to take when he didn't step up and lead his wife. Jesus walks right into the snake's den. And instead of staying quiet to keep his life, he says boldly, I am the son of God. Jesus is stepping boldly into the trouble that awaits him. He isn't cowering back, trying to avoid it. He sets his face forward and he marches forward. Listen, it's interesting to me. We get this story so jacked up in our head that many of us do everything in our life to avoid trouble. And yet what we see from Jesus is when Jesus is confident in who he is in the Father, he's confident he's the Son of God, he's confident that he's loved, the Spirit of God leads him into trouble. Please hear me. Many of us believe the lie that the Spirit of God leads us into sunshine and rainbows, and we should do everything in our power to orchestrate our little kingdoms into the most comfortable trouble-free existence of our life. We should do everything in our possible to remove every obstacle of possible trouble from our kids' lives. Because never having to, you know, work through trouble is really good for a child. Prepares them for the real world. If you're scared of trouble, you will never go to places that could cause you trouble. You'll never go overseas. You'll never go into that side of town. You'll never be involved in real community or organizations or causes that could risk your comfortable life. You'll never speak up for fear of causing yourself some trouble. So you'll hide. See, if you're scared of trouble, you'll never really love anyone else who's in trouble. Why? Because if you love someone who's in trouble, guess what? Trouble's coming. You ever try to love a drug addict? You will not be unscathed. You ever try to love somebody who's made a financial mess of their life? It will cost you your money. Trouble's coming. You ever try to love anybody at all for a lifetime? They die. We die. Trouble comes. If you want to live a trouble-free life, you can't follow Jesus. Following the Spirit of God leads us into trouble, not away from it. It's like teaching your teenagers, try to, you know, as they're growing up and those classes always, you know, happen during high school and school where this is the cool table and this is the not cool table and these are the popular kids and these are not the popular kids. And you try to teach your kids to cross the school lunch you know, the school lunchroom and and go sit with that kid who's not cool. You know why that's so hard? That's going to cause that kid trouble. That uncoolness is going to come off on him or her. But that's exactly what Jesus does for us. It's exactly what Jesus does here. Steps boldly and confidently into that situation that causes him trouble. But now here, Here's where, if I ended this sermon right now, it would not be a gospel-centered sermon, okay? And I want to teach you that tonight. I usually don't show that, like showing what I'm doing, but I'm showing what I'm doing this morning. If Jesus is only your example, he's only your example, if you're intellectually consistent, you have two options, really. You have shame or guilt. That's your response from the sermon. Shame that you... The Spirit's at work in my heart here. You're not as good as you think you are. I wanted to say something that probably would have got me in trouble. You're not as good as you think you are, right? Like we hear this and we say, this is how Christians should live. This is how Christians should respond. They should follow the Spirit. They should risk their popularity and risk their money and risk their health and risk going overseas and risk going out into bad neighborhoods. Christians should walk boldly into trouble because Jesus did it. And if you really analyze your life, you realize you don't do that. Not at this level. 
And so that should bring some shame and then it brings some guilt maybe for not doing it. And I could go, all right, go on, deal with that, have fun, see you next week. And you walk out saying, oh, for maybe an hour or so, feeling a little guilty, feeling a little shame, maybe a little fear. I need to motivate, I need to do this thing and live it for Jesus better. But I don't think that really motivates you when you see Jesus as only your example. See, if you, Jesus is only your example, you're gonna live your whole life dealing with the shame and the guilt because you don't live like Jesus did. You don't have the power to do it. You just can't do it. Nobody faces trouble with the resiliency that he did. Nobody has. Nobody can. Unless Jesus isn't just your example, but he's also your substitute. See, when Jesus says, Peter, put away the sword. Jesus refuses to take up the sword. What he, what he really does is like, put the sword away. I'm going to take the sword for you. You remember in the garden, when they got kicked out, there was two flaming swords put at the guard, the, you know, lightsabers, dueling lightsabers put at the, at the gate of the garden would not let people back in. Jesus now is going under the sword of God. He's taking the sword for his apostles as they run and flee and taking it for us. Jesus did what Adam should have done in the garden. This is the third piece that Adam should have done, remember? Don't take her. Don't kill her. It's my fault. Kill me. That's what Jesus does. Jesus goes to the Father and he says, don't take them, take me instead. Take my life as the punishment for their sin. Treat me like an enemy so you can treat them like the family. I know I'm the son of God, but kill me like an enemy so you can adopt them into this family by sheer grace. And when a person sees that, see, when a person sees that and they hear that and they believe that and God deposits it to the power of the Holy Spirit in their heart, it fills them with a new power. Hear me. This is a new power given to believers to help us enter into trouble, to help us to resist sin in the midst of trouble, to prepare us for the trouble that's on its way. Not just Jesus as an example, but Jesus as our substitute. We fail, and where we fail, we deserve to stand before the tribunal of God. Jesus stands before, it's God in the dock. Jesus stands before God and takes our punishment and takes our wrath to give us his righteousness and to forgive us of our sin, past, present, future, forever. So that when we are in trouble, we don't doubt that we're children. We don't doubt it. Jesus secured it for us. Jesus did it for us. We are blessed, happy children of God who have been chosen and adopted by the sheer grace of God and no amount of trouble can kick us out of the family of God. And that reality that is ours through the gospel, that identity as a gospel-centered child of God that's absolutely unshakable. That identity empowers us, motivates us, and sends us out into the trouble boldly and confidently. Your, our understanding of the gospel and who we are in God sends us out in that kind of trouble. That's how Jesus stood before it. That's how we stand before it. Think about that this morning. Jesus isn't just showing you how to live. He's living for you. It's not just showing you how to obey. He obeyed for you. It's not showing you just what you deserve. He took what you deserve for you. There's power in seeing Jesus not only as an example, but also as a substitute. That's the power at work in our church. That's the power that causes people to leave jobs and take less lucrative jobs so they can serve the community better. That's what sends us overseas. That's what sends us out in our community. That's what sends us to, it, to the, the, all the nonprofits that we serve in our city. That's what sends us across the, uh, the break room table to share our faith with people. That's what sends us to give our resources to the work of the kingdom. We're not trying to live trouble-free life. Let me pray. Father, this text does not end today on a very positive note. Our Savior, our King, as the song said this morning, 
our beautiful one, is being spit upon and beaten and mocked. Like a man who people turn their face away from, Isaiah says. They look at him in this moment. Can't be God's son. Can't be good. Can't be successful. Look at his failure. Look how, look how he's failing. Everything we fear, he's standing firm under right now. Loss of prestige. Loss of power. Friends abandoning him. Violence being done against him. Standing under an unjust society and judicial system. And yet he stands tall. And he takes it for us. And no matter what we're going through in our life right now, or no matter what we're going through in the future, because trouble comes for us all, we can know Jesus Christ stands with us. Jesus, thank you. You're not just our example, but you're also our substitute. We would have been there this night. We would have been like all the other disciples. We would have ran. We would have fleed. You did it for us. You did it for the glory of God. And we thank you. I pray in this moment that you would stir our hearts to love you, to see you as beautiful, to see you as gracious and kind. As we come to the Lord's table, we would receive the bread as the body of Christ. We would receive the wine or the grape juice as the blood of Christ. And we would be reminded what you have done for us and also who we are. That we are your sons and daughters and we've been purchased with your broken blood, your broken body and your shed blood. And nothing can remove us from this family because of your sovereign, one-way, irresistible grace. We thank you for it. In Christ's powerful name we pray, amen.